Excellent. Well, thank you very much. This evening, I want you to come with me on a journey to Jerusalem. We're going to go to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, and we're there at the time of the festival of Pentecost. And Pentecost, people from all over the Roman Empire, Jews from all over, have come back to Jerusalem. The city is absolutely packed. Every house, every street, every square is full of people. And Jerusalem has had an interesting few weeks, because just a few weeks previously, a guy called Yeshua was executed as a potential violent revolutionary. But then, a few days later, the tomb where they put his body was found empty. And the followers of this guy claimed that he'd been raised from the dead, and they claimed to spend 40 days with him while he was teaching them, but then he'd been taken away from them. And now at the time of Pentecost, they were in a house together. They were praying And all of a sudden, they heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind. They saw fire coming from the heavens and landing on their heads. And they found themselves speaking in languages they didn't know. And in the excitement, they rushed out onto the streets. And people around were going, what is this? But then people stopped and they thought, hang on a minute. He's speaking my language. I'm from some village out in the backwaters of the empire. He's speaking my language. And someone else goes, well, he's speaking my language. I'm from the other side of the empire. And people stopped and they said, what is this? I just want you to imagine, if you were there, what would you have said? If someone asked you, what is this? What would your answer have been? And actually, maybe it's your first time here tonight, and maybe you're thinking about this. What is this? Where else in life do you stand and sing songs to you for half an hour? Maybe you're thinking tonight, what is this? Well, back in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, the answer to that question was given. And I think the answer given then is just as important for us now. And I think actually, at its core, the answer given then answers what was happening in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and also answers, what is this? Why are we here today? The answer came from Peter, a follower of this guy Yeshua, or Jesus as you might know him. He was a man who had been with Jesus in his life and been commissioned by Jesus to be one of the people who would establish the church. We find this answer in Acts 2. At the moment, we're reading through Acts of the Church. Acts is a book in the New Testament that tells us about the first kind of 30 years of the church's history. And I'm going to spend the next 20 minutes or so opening up for us the answer Peter gave to that question. What is this? So I'm going to start reading Acts 2, starting in verse 14, reading a few verses from where Peter speaks. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Some people who saw this said, oh, they're just drunk. And Peter gets up and says, no, no, it's nine in the morning. They're not drunk. He says, no, this is what was spoken about through the prophet Joel. Joel was a man who lived about six or seven hundred years before Jesus, and he was a prophet. That means that he was a mouthpiece for God. God spoke to Joel so that Joel could then pass on God's words to the people. And he's one of the prophets who actually wrote down some of what he said, and now there's a book in the Old Testament of what God said through Joel. And so Peter said, this weird happening, this babbling in these languages, the people running around, the sound of the mighty wind, it's not people being drunk. This is the realization of God's promise made 600, 700 years before. And so then Peter continues, and he quotes what it was that Joel had said, what God had said through Joel. Start in verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, 
and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This, Peter says, this thing happening in Jerusalem is the realization of God's promise to pour out his spirit. And to really understand this, to get why it's important, we've got to know something very important. That's that God has always wanted and always planned to dwell with human beings. That's the story that the Bible tells. The world tells us there isn't a God or tells us if there is a God, he isn't interested in us. The Bible said, no, no, God made you, each one of you, to live with him, to be in relationship with him. And the story the Bible tells is the story of God's mission to make sure we can do that. So to get why what Joel says is important, we've got to know what's already come in the Old Testament. So I'm going to give you a quick three-minute summary of the Old Testament from creation to that point. Sam, come and join me. Come and join me. I need you to love this. I need you to marshal all your powers of imagination and to imagine that Santino here is representing God for us tonight, okay? So God creates the world, and in this world, he plants a beautiful garden. And in the garden, he puts two people. Steve, Maddie, come up, join us. He puts Adam and Eve in this garden... And God is dwelling with Adam and Eve. Humans and God are dwelling right there. Come up, come near to God. And as you can say, see, they are so happy. This is plan A. This is God's plan. This is what God wants, to live right there. Oh, it's touching. Right there with human beings. Sadly, things don't stay so good for so long. God gave one rule in this garden. There was one tree people weren't allowed to eat from. Adam and Eve weren't allowed to eat from. And it didn't take long before the crafty little serpent turned up. Let's take him. And he tempts Eve to eat from this one tree that God says not to eat from. And then she gives the fruit to Adam and he eats from the same tree. Humans have rebelled against God. Humans have rejected God. And so God has to send them out of the garden. God has to act. God has to judge. Plan A of God and humans dwelling together. You're gone for good, you can go sit down. Plan A, if humans and God went in together, is shattered. It's broken. Human rebellion has separated it. But God's determined that he's not going to let that stop him. God doesn't give up at this point. He first of all calls a man called Abraham. He makes promises to Abraham. And then from Abraham become a great nation of Israel. Brian, come join us. Brian's going to represent Israel for us. The people God chose to be his nation. But when... He called Israel. He also gave them the law on a stone tablet. And God said to Israel, I will be living with you here. Look, God and humans back together if you keep my law. Because God is perfect and God can only live with humans if they're perfect. So he gave them the law. So it's God and humans together, but it's conditional. And sadly, the story of the Old Testament shows us that humans can't keep God's law. Humans cannot make themselves perfect enough to be with God. Israel effectively throws the law away. (laughs) Nicely done. And because Israel rebel, Israel needs to stay here. (laughs) God sends other nations who come and they take Israel into exile. They destroy the temple, which is the place where God had come and dwelt among Israel. And they're separated. 
But still, God hasn't given up. That hasn't worked either, but God starts sending messages, using his mouthpieces, using the prophets to say, actually, I'm coming back. I'm going to make a way. I'm going to live with humans again. And that's what God was saying through Joel. Even though it didn't work in the garden, even though Israel couldn't keep the law, God couldn't live among people, he was saying, I'm going to make a way. And when Peter stands up in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, he says, now God has made the way. Thank you, guys. You can take a seat. So what's happening here is not God having a funny idea one day. Wouldn't it be funny, he says, you know, to go down and be with the humans for a while? No, no, this is God restoring plan A for humanity. And this quote from Joel says that the Spirit's going to be poured out on all flesh. And that's really important. So we've just seen in the story of the Old Testament that actually God dwelt among Israel. But at that time, he was only dwelling among Israel. And now it says God's going to come and live with all of us. He talks about different pairs of people. He talks about men and women, old and young, even the servants, the lowest, the people considered the lowest in society, even they are going to be in relationship with God. God is going to come and live right with them. And then Joel talks about wonders in the heavens and signs on the earth below, which come before the day of the Lord. These signs and wonders could be things that happened around the time of the crucifixion of Jesus. We know from the Gospels when Jesus was crucified, there was darkness for several hours, there was an earthquake. Or they could be things which are still further ahead of us in the timeline. But either way, they herald the day of the Lord. This is a term, a little phrase we find a lot in the book of Joel, a lot in the Old Testament. It's the day that marks the end of this age. The day when Jesus returns, when Jesus judges all people. His judgment day is what it's sometimes called. And a few years later, after this speech, Peter will be writing to a number of churches. And he says this about that day. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's going to come when you least expect it. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Everything done on the earth will be laid bare, will be laid clearly in front of Jesus. And Jesus will act as judge. And Peter's saying that these events here in Jerusalem are proof that the clock is ticking. You know those sand timers you got, the egg timers, that you turn them over and the sand comes trickling through. When you turn it over, there's this inevitability about the fact that if you leave it like that, the sand's all going to go through, the time's going to go. And Peter's saying, God's pouring out the Spirit. Part of what that tells us is that actually the clock is ticking. The end of this age is coming when Jesus comes back. And the, this idea, the idea of a judgment day, is very, very unpopular in the modern West. We don't think a good God should also be a judge. But actually, I think deep down, we do. We all hate injustice. We all hate a lack of of justice. If someone does something against us, if someone hurts us, we want justice done. The only time we don't want justice done is when we're the ones who's hurt someone. That's why we as modern Westerners have such a problem with the idea of a good God who judges. Actually, God is a just judge. And that will be the day when God works out his justice. So there's a warning here. Peter's actually saying, watch out, there's a day coming. But it doesn't end there. Because Joel then says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. To be saved on the day of the Lord means to escape from the punishment that's being poured out. And that's what God wants for all people. There's an offer here. God himself makes a way of escape when we call on his name. 
And it's to that that Peter now turns his attention. As he's speaking to these people, he now tells them more about this Lord, more about what it means to call on his name. And so we've had the, the what, the what is this that's going on. We now get the why. Why is it that today, that day, this was happening? And it turns out it's all because of Jesus. So I'm going to pick up what Peter says now in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter tells us three things about this Jesus. First off, he lived and God did miracles through him to point, to confirm who he was. When Jesus was on earth, he healed people, he multiplied food, he walked on water, all sorts of things. And Peter's saying all these things that God did through Jesus, they're all like big road signs pointing to Jesus, saying, this one, this one is the Messiah, this one's the Christ, my chosen promised deliverer. He says he lives, then he said he died. And this is wonderful paradox. It says actually this was all the plan of God. Actually, it was also the act of lawless men. You know, the crucifixion of Jesus didn't take God by surprise. God wasn't in heaven that day panicking. What do we do now? What do we do now? It was all part of his plan, all part of that mission, this story the Bible is telling us, that God is restoring that relationship. And then he says he didn't just die. He was also raised back to life. Jesus isn't still dead. Jesus is alive today. And he uses this funny phrase. He says he was loosing the pangs of death. And the pangs are the pains of childbirth. And when a lady goes into labor, there's a sense of inevitability that something's coming. A baby is going to come. And he uses this funny phrase, and he's saying, when Jesus goes down into the grave, because of who he is, there's this inevitability that he's not going to stay there. As Peter says, because death could not hold him. And now Peter quotes a song written a thousand years before, a song which said that God's promised one, the Messiah, wasn't going to be held in death. He wasn't going to see corruption. He was going to be raised back to life. And just because of time, we're going to skip over it. But he basically says, look, this was said a thousand years before God said this is what was going to happen. And then picking up verse 32, Peter starts to tell us the implications for all this. What's all this mean? He says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus hadn't only risen from the dead, he'd also ascended to heaven to be with God the Father. The one who'd been exalted and lifted up, being mocked on a cross, is now exalted and lifted up by God to sit at his right hand. And the right hand, the imagery there, is of a monarch, and the right hand of a monarch was the place where the most favoured, the most honoured person sat. And in the Old Testament, it's also kind of a metaphor for God's power, for God's authority, for God's salvation. And so Jesus is the one who's been put in the position of the most honored person with the power and authority of God. And Peter says that once Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God, God gives to him the Holy Spirit. And that thing that's happening in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago is that Jesus is now pouring out the Holy Spirit on all people. 
that the Holy Spirit is coming to live inside them. That relationship lost in the garden is restored right there. And again, he quotes one of these songs written by David, a song which said that God's Messiah, God's promised one, would be exalted. The song says that the Lord, that's God, says to my Lord, that's Jesus, the Messiah, sit at my right hand. And Peter says, well, we know David didn't ascend because his grave's over there. We can go and see it. This must be, he says, it must be talking about the Messiah. And finally, Peter reaches his big finish, the big point he wants you to get. The thing that ultimately explains what's happening in Jerusalem then. The thing that ultimately explains why we're here tonight. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. All these events proved that God had made Jesus both Lord and Christ. And when he says made, it doesn't mean that he somehow changed Jesus. Jesus doesn't start as a man and then get made into God. He doesn't start as a good guy who God picks and thinks, I'll use you as the Messiah. It's a better, better put maybe as appointed. He enters a new phase of performing these roles. And there's two roles here. First of all, he's Christ. Christ and Messiah are the same word. They mean anointed one. This was the figure who hundreds of years, for hundreds of years, God had been promising he would send to restore the relationship between him and humanity. It's not just Jesus' surname, it's a role he performed. And then he says that Jesus has been appointed Lord. A Lord is one who reigns, one who has authority. He's saying Jesus is now king. There's a story later in Acts, Acts 17. When Paul and Silas, two of the early church leaders, are in a city called Thessalonica. And they start telling people about Jesus, just like Peter does here. And the people start accusing them. They say, you're undermining Caesar, the emperor. You're saying there's another king. I can just imagine Paul and Silas going, yes, that's exactly what we're saying. Jesus is now king. Jesus is the one, the Bible says, who is now reigning. And he will reign until that last day when he comes and judges. At that point, he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. And God the Father will then reign over all. And when he says Lord, there's two other kind of echoes as well. Two other things that Peter's hearers would have thought. First off, they would have thought of the emperor. At this point, the Roman Empire covers pretty much the whole of the known world. And the title used for the emperor was Lord. So the emperor was considered Lord of all, Lord of all the world. And so when Peter says, this Jesus has been appointed Lord, he's saying, Caesar isn't emperor. He's not the top dog. Jesus is now top, even over the emperor. The other thing that they would have thought when Peter said this, by this time, Jews didn't like to say God's name. In the Old Testament, God's name is revealed as Yahweh. But Jews, out of reverence, didn't like to say it. And so when they were reading the Old Testament, if they came across the name Yahweh, they would replace it with Lord. So when Peter says, Jesus has been appointed Lord, He's saying Jesus is God. Jesus is king. That's the message of Christianity. At its heart, that is what the gospel is about. Jesus is king. You know, the gospel, gospel means good news. But often we can think of it more like it's good advice. Often we can kind of get into thinking the gospel is follow Jesus and he'll make your life better. That's not good news. That's good advice. The gospel says Jesus is king, follow him. That's news. Jesus is now king. That's the news. He calls us to follow him. And you can kind of imagine 
Peter steps down. He's been standing on a rock or something. And I imagine there was just stunned silence. This man we crucified, this man we rejected, this man we mocked has been appointed Christ and Lord. He was the one we've been waiting for. He was God and we rejected him. And so they say, Peter, Peter, what should we do? If Jesus is king, what do we do? And so he gives them an answer. He says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. God isn't tight-fisted with his salvation. God wants to save all people, and the offer is right here. First off, he says, we've got to repent. Repentance is a really misunderstood and really overlooked word and idea, but it's really important. When Jesus first turns up, the first thing Jesus says in the Gospels is that the kingdom of God is at hand, i.e. he's saying, I'm king, it's time to repent and believe the good news of the kingdom. To repent means to turn around, to do an about turn. It's about changing our minds so our actions change as a following thing. It starts from a place to recognize that things we do, things we say, ways we think even, are wrong. That ultimately we start life by walking away from God rather than to him and with him. And repenting is when we decide, I'm going to stop walking away from God and I'm going to turn and trust that he will receive me. It's a choice to give up our old life in order to get a new life in him. We don't just kind of add Jesus on to our lives. We turn away from our old lives and turn to him. And so repentance isn't just kind of being sad or sorry for things we've done. Sometimes we can squash it down to that. Repentance is like you're walking on a journey and you're going along and you suddenly think, oh, I'm going the wrong way. Repentance is stopping, choosing to turn around and starting off in the other direction. What repentance isn't is going along thinking, oh, I'm going the wrong way, carrying on the wrong way and just being miserable about it. That's regret, not repentance. We do this when we first respond to Jesus, but it's actually also something that should characterize our lives as people who follow King Jesus. So if you're a Christian here tonight, don't think this isn't for you, because Jesus would say tonight, where is he not king in your life? That will be the area where you need to stop and make the decision to turn around and follow his way. We need to be open to God challenging us. Sometimes that's directly through the Holy Spirit. Sometimes as we read the Bible, Actually, something sticks out to us, and that's God poking us, challenging us. Sometimes it's through one another, the family God gives us, that we can encourage each other and say, I'm just not sure about this, mate. What do you think God would think of this? It starts with repentance. Then he says, be baptized. To be baptized is to be plunged, to be immersed in water. And it's a symbol of our commitment and faith in Jesus. When you repent, the thing you're turning to is to Jesus. You're turning and trusting that he will accept you, that he's made a way for you to come back to God. And it's part of the package. Notice how quickly they come. He says, repent, then be baptized. Baptism isn't something we kind of do after a little while. We don't wait and get a few things sorted out first. We don't have to become a different stage of Christian. It's repent and be baptized. So if you're a Christian here today and you haven't been baptized, let me encourage you, be at the front of the line at the info desk next time we've got baptisms going on. It's a command of Jesus, repent and be baptized. And baptism becomes a picture of the next thing. He says it's for the forgiveness of sins. The reason we turn to Jesus is to have our sins forgiven. Ever since the garden, ever since the snake turned up, the problem has been sin. 
that humans go our own way. Ultimately, that we ignore the fact that God's there and we worship the created things, not the creator. But Jesus made a way. The reason Jesus came was to bridge that gap. When Jesus hung on the cross, all the punishment that should have gone to us for our sin was poured on him. And when we turn to him, when we trust in him, he sees us as perfect. All of my muck gets put on Jesus, and all of Jesus' perfection gets put on me. Jesus sees me as perfect. Jesus sees us as perfect when we turn to him. He forgives our sins so we can be in that relationship. And then he says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Being forgiven isn't the end goal. If we stop at forgiveness, it's kind of like you're invited to someone's house for dinner. You walk in the house, sit down on the floor in the hallway, when actually the dinner is waiting for you in the dining room. Forgiveness is just the doorway into something else, into life with God, into restoration to plan A. God in the garden with humans, plan A was that we dwell with God, with his spirit, with his presence with us. That is what the end goal is. And notice it all starts repentance with repentance. As Sam so helpfully said, the reason that tonight we've given thanks for little faith is because she's not yet ready to make that decision herself. She has to make the decision to repent and then to be baptized, and everything follows from that. So tonight we've had a thanksgiving, not a baptism, we haven't made her a Christian. And actually it's something that each one of us has to do. No one can do this for us. Each one of us has to make that choice. The great of the band could come back up and join me. So we've asked, what is this? What was going on 2,000 years ago? What seemed like madness was actually the fulfillment of God's plan, God's promise, a restoration to plan A for humanity. Why was it happening then? It was happening then because Jesus had been appointed Christ and Lord. Jesus is now king. Because of that, we need to repent, we need to be baptized, and then we'll receive the Holy Spirit. And the thing I kind of want to leave you with tonight, the one question I want you to go away thinking to yourself, is where is Jesus not Christ and Lord? Where is Jesus not king in your life? Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. Actually, you'd have to say, honestly, there is nowhere in your life that Jesus is king. But maybe tonight you're thinking, man, I think this is true. (laughs) Jesus is the only king who will reign forever and ever and ever. If that's you, we'd so love to talk with you. Come and find myself or one of the guys at the front. We'd love to talk with you this evening. And if you'd like, we can pray with you. If you're a Christian here tonight, the question's the same. Where is Jesus not king in your life? And we're going to sing a song now, just before we close. I just want to encourage you to be open to the Holy Spirit. Just coming and giving you that little nudge and saying, what about this bit? What about this bit? Jesus' way is always the best way for us. And tonight, some of us actually need to turn our back on some of the parts of our old life which we've allowed to stay. I actually need to make that choice and say, no, I'm going in the wrong direction. I'm going to stop. I'm going to turn and trust that Jesus is going to receive me and I'm going to walk in God's way. Beloved, if you could stand with me. I'm just going to pray, ask the Holy Spirit to come and move among us, and then I'm going to hand over to Jeanette and the guys. Father God, we thank you that when things went wrong, you were not prepared to leave us alone. Thank you for it always being your mission, always being your desire to live in relationship with humanity. And Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus, and Jesus, we thank you that you lived that you died, but that you were raised back to life and you ascended to be the Father. We acknowledge that you are now king over all. And we thank you. You are pouring out the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, I just pray, would you come right now? Come and draw close to us tonight. 
I just pray in your wonderful, gentle, loving way, would you highlight to us areas of our life where Jesus is not king, areas that you want back, areas where you've got something better for us. I just pray, Holy Spirit, come right now and talk to us. Come and poke us and remind us. And Lord God, I pray, would you help us right now to repent in those areas that we need to, to give our all to you and to follow you, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, who will reign forever and ever and ever. Amen.